Shalom, Reverend John Ferriott here, and this is, again, the continuing Bible study of the Torah in the book of Exodus, the Gospel according to Moses in the book of Exodus, and we're in Lesson 49, and we're in Part 2. Now, in Part 1, we clearly saw that there was no such thing as slavery in ancient Israel, at least between the Hebrews. Now, in Lesson 50, we're going to get into this in a deeper way. We're focusing in on two verses, Exodus 21, verses 1 through 2. Now, these are the ordinances which you are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years. But on the seventh, he shall go out as a free man without payment. So we're looking at this verse was talking about Hebrew slaves, but we introduced that in part one in lesson 49, and here we are in part two. Just as a reminder, the word eved, and that is Strong's number H5650, can mean slave, what we would call in the negative sense, like, you know, slavery in America. But it's also used for servants. It's also used for bondsmen. It's also even used for God's people. I mean, just take a look at this. We're going to take a look at Exodus chapter 14, verse 31. And we read, When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. He wasn't a slave, and that's the Hebrew word that's being used here, eved. Moses is not the slave of God, never even considered the slave of God. So indeed, we see a broader use of the term eved here for Moses. But it also is related to Abraham and Jacob and Isaac. We're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 27. And we read, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember your servants, your Ebedim. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are not slaves of God. And in that verse, we finish up by saying, do not look at the stubbornness of these people or at their wickedness or their sin. So remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are God's men. Men who lived freely following God. Following God as their father, following God as their God. These were men of the Bible. Now in part one we saw clearly also that God condemned American slavery. We saw based upon articles and upon really good some good scholarship scholarship backup is that slavery in the United States that led to the Civil War was primarily based upon kidnapping. And in Exodus 21, verse 16, we read that kidnapping is a capital offense and the kidnapper will be executed. Now this is Torah. This is 3,400 years old and it comes against the evils of today. It comes against the trafficking of children. Many times in the sex trade all across the world children are kidnapped 
This is against God's word that he gave to his people 3,400 years ago. And here during the war between Israel and Hamas, what Hamas did on October 7, 2023, just thousands of innocents were massacred, tortured, burned, babies burned in, in, micro, in, in ovens, and many were kidnapped. And again, here we have the evil of kidnapping. So, in part one of Lesson 49, we started dealing with slavery. And it's awesome that it's so applicable to us today. But what else is new? How many times have we read that God's word stands forever? God is the same yesterday, today, and in the future. So, we're going to be focusing in on non-Hebrew slaves in this lesson. Now, the reason why I'm doing this is really the verse for non-Hebrew slaves really isn't to the book of Leviticus. But when we come across this verse, Exodus 21, verses 1 through 2, and we're dealing with Hebrew slaves, and they were slaves in Egypt in the negative sense, I felt it appropriate that we cover the issue of non-Hebrew slaves now. Now, with regards to Hebrew slaves, Hebrew servants, we're going to look at that more in depth in Lesson 50, because that'll be Exodus 21, verses 1 through 27. We'll get into the detail then. We're going to focus in on questions like, what is a Hebrew slave? How does he become one? Is it forced, involuntary? What's going on? Again, we're going to see this in Lesson 50. And, and again, it's not what we think. I mean, we just read verse 2, where it said a Hebrew slave has to be freed after six years. Guys, this is not what we mean by regular slavery. But now, what about the non-Hebrew Eved? The non-Hebrew slave. Clearly, Torah allows for Hebrews to have non-Hebrew slaves. They're forced to work for the Hebrew master. It's involuntary service. So just consider, we're going to go to Leviticus 25. And in Leviticus 25, we're going to be taking a look at verses 44 through 46. And quoting and reading from the New American Standard, As for your male and female slaves who you may have, you may acquire male and female slaves from the pagan nations that are around you. Then too it is out of the sons of the sojourners who live as aliens among you that you may gain acquisition. So they could buy slaves even from the pagans that live among them, but they couldn't buy them from another Hebrew and out of their families who are with you, whom they will have produced in your land. They also may become your possession. So in a sense, what's happening there, if you have a non-Hebrew slave and they get married in terms of their servitude to you, 
and they have children, then those children automatically are non-Hebrew slaves and they're your possession as well. You may even bequeath them to your sons after you to receive as a possession. You can use them as permanent slaves. But in respect to your countrymen, the sons of Israel, you shall not rule with severity over one another. So, we see that one way to get a non-Hebrew slave is to buy them, but only from non-Hebrews. Couldn't buy them from a Hebrew. There's a secondary way, though, that you could get a non-Hebrew slave. Let's go to Numbers 31. In Numbers 31, I'm reading verses 26 through 27. You and Eleazar the priest and the heads of the father's households of the congregation take account of the booty that was captured both of man and animal and divide the booty between the warriors who went out to battle and all the congregation. Levy a tax for the, for the Lord from the men of war who went out to battle, one in five hundred of the persons and of the cattle and of the donkeys and of the sheep. Take it from their half and give it to Eleazar the priest as an offering to the Lord. From the sons of Israel half you shall take one drawn out of every fifty of the persons, of the cattle, of the donkeys, and of the sheep, from all the animals, and give them to the Levites who keep charge of the tabernacle of the Lord. Now this was as a result of God coming to Moses ordering them to attack Midian. And so when they did this, it's a fascinating story in Numbers 31. There was not even a Hebrew uh, that was killed or even injured during the battle. But they came back and they had captives. And here we're seeing that God is giving them instruction as to how to divvy up the human ones. Now let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 20. And we're taking a look at verse 10 through 11 which is related to this. When you approach a city to fight against it, you shall offer it terms of peace. If it agrees to make peace with you and opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall become your forced labor and shall serve you. So these are kind of the only ways that a Hebrew can obtain a slave must be a non-Hebrew purchased only from a non-Hebrew or a non-Hebrew captured in war or it could very well be that your Hebrew slave and his wife had children and those become your slaves as well, the children. So, there is slavery in the negative sense allowed by God. And you guys, this is very upsetting to many of us in our current 21st century culture. Now, the one thing we've already seen is God deals with American slavery, the kidnapping of black Africans and bringing them here where their families were even separated, husbands and wives separated, children from their, from their parents so we're dealing with something a little bit different here. But God is allowing slavery. And we have to ask ourselves, why? 
what is the Lord up to? Now, as I have studied the Bible in its historical context, in my graduate studies, and then after my graduate studies as well, my question is always, how did the first audience hear and understand God's word? Clearly for us today, in the 21st century, we would say, no way, slavery? Come on. And so the thing is, is that, but we need to hear these words, the way the Hebrews heard it coming out of Egypt. Now, a great example of this is when we talk about Jesus as a baby laid in a manger. For us, we didn't live 2,000 years ago in Israel. All we have in our 21st century perception is that Jesus was in a crib. He was in a cradle. Um, and the manger was, uh, it was made out of wood. In fact, when you try to hear as the first audience, as you try to hear like the Jews in Jesus' day, we begin to see that they understood it as a rock bowl. It was man-made. And it was for livestock, for watering livestock, whether they be horses or donkeys or cattle or even sheep. Or even to feed them as well. They're found in shepherd's caves. They're found in ancient Jewish homes in the lower level. They were found in Ahab's horse stables at the ancient city of Megiddo. You can see them there today if you visit Megiddo. So knowing what a manger is in truth, this rock bowl, not colored by our own ideas, gives us an expanded and enriched understanding of God's word. Thus, I suggest we need to first study the Bible as if you would be one of those people who would hear the very words of God for the first time. God suggests this because as he inspired Moses to be the teacher of his people, the teacher of these things. We take a look at this in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Again, reading from the New American Standard, Now Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform, so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord has done in the case of Baal Peor, for all the men who followed Baal Peor, the Lord your God, has destroyed them from among you. But you held fast to the Lord your God, or those who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me. There's that interesting statement. God commanded Moses to teach them his word. And Moses goes on to say that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding and the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there 
that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I'm setting before you today? God commanded his evet, his servant, not his slave, Moses. He was faithful as a prophet, as a teacher. He was faithful as God's servant, not a slave. So Adonai tells them what's going to happen. There'll be a witness to all the nations. God's word gives wisdom to Israel, and God is close to his people. Finally, God's laws and his ordinances are just, just like... And, and, this is the, when you take a look at any other God, any other nation, there's no comparison to the ordinances and the laws of the God of Israel. Now this is good news. In God we find wisdom like no other gods. Only God who is only God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of Israel, who is just, not like any other gods. He was a God close to those who are his people. And he answers them whenever his people call on him. God wants Israel and Moses to live to show the pagan nations God and who he is. It's just like when you read in Isaiah 49.6, Israel is going to be a light to the nations. I highly recommend you take a look at that verse. They're going to be a light to the nations to bring God's salvation to the ends of the earth. Salvation is Yeshua. To, the, to all nations. And this is strongly a part of their Shema. As we take a look in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and you rise up. Just by the way, I just wanted to let you know, the Jewish people here really understand that you have to read the Bible and you need to study the Bible. Just listen to that verse. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and you rise up. This is not just reading the Bible. And that word diligently there is shanan. The Strong's number is 8150. And it gives the picture of a spear jabbing again and again and again, piercing piercing somebody again and again this is how you teach them you teach them over and over and over again so like like stabbing them over and over and over again god is really serious about this and it's written to all israel we continue on in verse 8 you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates so it seems 3,400 years ago, God wanted Israel to be a very special and unique people. In other words, holy. Not saved. They're special. They're unique. Salvation is a completely different 
relationship to holy. Holy means separate and unique. They are to be witnesses to all the nations. So, now we come back to this idea of slavery, and we're focused in on the Hebrew people 3,400 years ago, not on us today. God is allowing a form of slavery. It's forced. It's involuntary. They're working for a Hebrew owner, master, and it's a non-Hebrew. And again, they could have been purchased from pagans in a pagan nation, or it could have been they, they could have been purchased from pagans right there living in Israel, or captured in a war. Was this possibly something? about God's witness to the nations? Is something going on here where God, with regards to his laws to Israel regarding slavery, that this is a witness to all the pagan nations throughout the world about him? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Israel, the one God, the only God, the true God? Did God allow it to teach the non-Hebrew nations then of himself? Perhaps. Because all the nations, all the nations, the pagan nations, had slaves. And God was seemingly setting up conditions of slavery that was just and merciful and humane so that all the pagan nations would see that men and women, whether they're Hebrew or not Hebrew, were all made in the image of God. So slavery then was just a common practice among all the nations, but God gives us laws and commands that affected non-Hebrew slaves. It's just like in Genesis, chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. This affects non-Hebrew slaves. All men and women are made in the image of God. But not just men, women too. It's so different than the other nations in the ancient Near East. God, right there in Genesis chapter 1, is saying, whether they're Hebrew or not Hebrew, just as long as they're human... that they're made in the image of God and women are equal to men. You go to Leviticus 19, verse 18, or Leviticus 19, verse 34. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the non-Hebrew as yourself. Because in Leviticus 19, 18, it says love your neighbor as yourself. But in Leviticus 19, 34, it says love the sojourner, the stranger among you. That's not a Hebrew. That's going to be a non-Hebrew, a pagan. Or it could have been somebody yet that converts to Judaism and is following the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But there's no qualification there. Not in that, not in the, that command in Leviticus. You are to love the sojourner, the foreigner, as yourself. So the logic is this. 
If you have to love the non-Hebrew person, sojourner, as yourself, and you have to love your neighbor as yourself, the logica says that the non-Hebrew is your neighbor. Now, it doesn't say anything about slaves. Leviticus 19.18 and Leviticus 19.34 include slaves. It doesn't eliminate them. So we're talking about all non-Hebrews, including non-Hebrew slaves. One's non-Hebrew slave, you have to love him or her as yourself. You have to treat them as your neighbor. Can you imagine the pagan nations 3,400 years ago hearing this? This is what Israel does? They look upon the slaves that they have, the non-Hebrew slaves, as their neighbor? It, it, it's it, it's unbelievable. Now let's take a look at a very specific scenario. God really delves into this in detail. So here's the situation. We're in Numbers 31, verses 17 through 18. So we're back after the army has defeated the Midianites. So in verse 17, New American Standard again, Now therefore kill every male among the little ones, and kill every woman who has known man intimately. But all the girls who have not known man intimately, spare for yourselves. Now, this is interesting because it's almost as if all the young virgins a man can keep for himself. And you say, what? Is God promoting sex slavery? Sexual mistreatment slavery? <laughs> Actually, no. Because what we need to do is treat the whole Torah in a holistic way. Because God addresses this situation as we go to Deuteronomy 21. So we're reading in verses 10 through 14. When you go out to battle against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands, and you take them away captive, and see among the captives a beautiful woman. Now this is related to what we just read in Numbers. And have a desire for her, and would take her as a wife for yourself. Then you shall bring her home to your house, and she shall shave her head and trim her nails. She shall also remove the clothes of her captivity, and shall remain in, her, in your house, and mourn for her father and mother a full month. And after that you may go into her and be her husband, and she will be your wife. It shall be, if you shall not let her, uh, you're not pleased with her, then you shall let her go, wherever she wishes, but you sh shall certainly not sell her for money. You shall not mistreat her, because you have humbled her. Imagine this. This is a non-Hebrew woman captured in battle. She's not a sex toy. This is no, God is not promoting rape or, or sexual mistreatment. Mistreat he sets up his way gives her a mourning period because for a month to mourn for the fact that she's not going to see her parents and 
after the month, the man who now has this captive, non-Hebrew, beautiful slave girl has to marry her. And if he does not, and he decides that he doesn't want her for her wife, her as a wife, he's going to let her go. Now, the Gentile nations around Israel would find this thing so foreign, so strange, so weird. And on top of that, God is again elevating women to a very special status 3,400 years ago in a male-dominated world. So God is setting up his rules and regulations with regards to non-Hebrew slaves in such a way that his, his laws and his commands are very just and very fair and very humane. Unbelievably so, as compared to 3,400 years ago. We can't put it in our culture today. We've got to realize God is writing to them then, and he's trying to have them witness to the nations all around them. Just imagine, a Hebrew slave owner, a Hebrew slave owner, must allow their slaves a day of rest. This is in Exodus 20, verse 10. This is in the Ten Commandments. Your slaves, now it said, and it doesn't say Hebrew slaves there, it says your slaves. They must have a day of rest. In Egypt, the Hebrews, they did not have a Sabbath. They were not allowed a Sabbath. In Egypt, they had a 10-day week with one day off. Do you think the slave, the slaves, the Hebrew slaves had a day off? There is a great scholar by the name of Samuel Sefrai. He is now with the Lord. He is a religious Jewish scholar considered just an amazing man who has helped us understand the Jews in the first century. He worked with Christians in a very close way so that they could understand the culture of Jesus' day. And in his book, The Jewish People in the First Century, Samuel Safrai with other scholars, he talked about the fact that slaves, non-Hebrew slaves, were treated just like a part of your family. And on top of that, it was more than just the Sabbath. They actually got involved with the family that they're slaves to for the feast, the appointed times of God. Let's take a look in Deuteronomy 16, 11 through 14. We read, And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, and your male and female servants, and the Levite who is in your town, and the stranger and the orphan and the widow who are in your midst, in the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish his name, which later on is Jerusalem. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. You shall celebrate the Feast of Booths seven days after you have gathered in from your threshing floor and your wine vat. And it goes on. It talks about the fact that your servants, your slaves, are going to be part of these celebrations. Now, later on, after 70 AD, we also learn 
that a Gentile slave, now this is after 70 AD, this is after the temple was destroyed, and this is now into rabbinic Judaism. But in the Talmud, it talks about the fact that a slave could pay the master an agreed, up, agreed upon amount so that he could be set, set free. So we're seeing some amazing laws and ordinances with regards to the non-Hebrew slave. And on top of that, the Hebrew master, the Hebrew owner of a non-Hebrew slave cannot mistreat them. Even if they knock out a tooth, the non-Hebrew slave is going to be set free. You can read about this in Exodus 21, verse 27. So once again, I've included a number of articles. You can find the links underneath the picture for this podcast. And again, depending upon uh, the website where you're listening to this podcast from, there should be a way of opening up the area underneath the picture or the area underneath where, of the play button where you can read more about this specific lesson. And that's where the links to those articles uh, are. And I base this lesson based upon an article that's entitled Slavery that's found at the Jewish Virtual Library. I've included that article for you as well. And the link to other references as well. So it is God's plan to not to do away with slavery totally. But he modified it. For them then, 3,400 years ago, the, the nations then, the, non, the, the pagan nations, would see and notice the God of Hebrews. They would say that this God is amazingly special. He's God. He's our God. He's the only God. And the question is this. Did God do this to draw Gentile nations to himself? There's a fascinating scholarly article, again, one of the ones that I've included for your further study. And there's a Jewish rabbi that says that God didn't abolish slavery all at once. He made it more humane. And God modified it since the human heart cannot be changed immediately. Isn't that interesting? This rabbi's perspective is the human heart cannot be changed immediately. And so, therefore, God started changing slavery to end slavery. But he did it in such a way to turn it into something that was just and fair and human. It's an interesting point of view. So, in fact, the Bible did not completely outlaw slavery. We can't argue it away. But we know our God, his characteristics. And as we study his word, we found out he is a God of mercy, a God of loving kindness, compassion. And so as we look upon this in its historical context, God has these laws and commands that modified in slavery then. And his laws... And his changes to slavery would have been highly controversial. God wants Israel to live and obey his commandments to be a light to the nations. 
Perhaps that's what this is all about. Perhaps it's related to John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his son Jesus. Because when Jesus came, not only do we find out that he's the light of the world, but we're the light of the world. And now we're to continue to bring the salvation of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of Israel, his salvation, his Yeshua, to the ends of the earth. And we'll remember in Luke 24, 50, that Jesus lifted up his hands to bless his 120 disciples before he ascended the Father, just like the high priest daily lifts up his hands. It could very well be that Jesus blessed them with the ironic blessing. I've taken the ironic blessing and I've turned it into a prayer. I'd like to end our session with that blessing, that blessing that's based upon the high priestly blessing that God gave to Moses, to Aaron, to bless the people. Yevarekeinu Adonai Vishmarkenu, Yair Adonai Panava Alenu, Bekunikinu, Isa Adonai Panava Lenu, Viasem Lanu Shalom, Vishem Yeshua Adonenu, Amen. So together, let's say this in English. May the Lord bless us and keep us. May the Lord make his face to shine upon us and be gracious to us. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon us and may he give us his shalom. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.